we are now going to be in, in 2 Peter chapter 2. David, uh, I mean Peter, did such a great job last week finishing up chapter 1 of uh, 2 Peter. And now we turn to chapter 2 of 2 Peter. And when I read through 2 Peter in the teaching this morning, you're going to discover that 2 Peter in its tone is very, very different than 2 Peter chapter 2 is very different than 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter 1, chapter 1 was so encouraging. God has given us precious and magnificent promises. But then we come to chapter 2. Many years ago, my daughter Madeline, they were racing on their bikes through the neighborhood, and, and she took a fall. It was okay, though, because she used her chin to stop herself. We went, we looked, we said, yeah, we think we probably should go to the hospital. So we went to the hospital, and, you know, before they could stitch up her chin, you know what they had to do? They had to clean it. And I was so glad that there was something they could inject in her chin to, to make it numb before they did what they needed to do. And I was so glad that I didn't have to do what they did. And I was so glad that Madeline couldn't see what they did because they were so direct. They were so aggressive. They were so assertive in the way they took that swab and they cleaned out that wound on Madeline's chin. And that's what Peter is going to do for us this morning in 2 Peter chapter 2. He does not want there to be false teaching, heresy, growing within the church. And so he is going to speak in very direct terms that some of us may be uncomfortable with. And he's going to draw from Old Testament stories and truths about God and his nature that some of us may recoil from and we might wish weren't even in the Bible. Oh, but he has our best interests in mind. I promise he does. So let's jump in together in 2 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves." Peter says that secretly people are going to come into the church and they're not necessarily going to announce themselves, hey, I'm a false teacher. No, they're going to do it secretly. And they're going to introduce false teaching. And so the question is, how can you spot false teaching? How can you spot heresy? Well, what is heresy? See, heresy is a, is a false gospel. It's a false teaching that strikes at the core of the Christian message that's contained in the gospel. It's contrary to the gospel. Now, many people 
present false teaching as if, as if it's enlightened. I mean, come on, you've got to get with the times. You've got to stay current. I mean, don't, don't believe in those old truths. Don't believe in those old ideas. No, no, you want to be on the right side of history. And that's how they'll present their false teaching. And Peter says, no, don't believe it for a second. Don't give in to it. Be on your guard. Be on the lookout for false teaching. Some of us think that the false teachers might, that maybe these really are the enlightened ones. I mean, maybe these really are the, the, the most intelligent. But Peter goes on and he says, listen, don't buy that. Because what's actually controlling their hearts is not an enlightened pursuit of truth, but something else. Listen to verses 2 and 3. Many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle. And their destruction is not asleep. Peter says... What's controlling the false teachers is not a sincere interest in the truth, but what's actually controlling their hearts is sensuality and greed, sex and money. Those have been amongst the enemy's chief weapons from the very beginning, and it's no different, was no different in the days of Peter, and it's no different today. And if the false teachers are to be controlled, are being controlled by sensuality and by greed, then what are we to be controlled by? We're to be controlled by the love of Christ. We're to be controlled by something other than sensuality, something other than greed. And in the way we refute false teachers, we're to show that our hearts and minds are being controlled by the love of Christ, even in the way we refute false teachers. We live in a day when on the internet, false teaching can spread rapidly. But you know what else can spread rapidly? The truth. The truth of Jesus can spread rapidly. And when we proclaim the truth in love, speaking the truth in love, we confound false teaching and we prove that we're followers of Christ. And it's so important that what we do and what we say in order to confront false teachers be done and said in love. Because we don't want to be like my friend the emu. I had, I had a friend in South Florida who was an emu farmer, and he told me this story. Emu farmers have to always be on guard for their flock because if anyone within the flock of the emus gets the smallest little sore, 
He needs to immediately take that emu out from the flock because the other emus will see that sore and they'll begin to peck at that sore. And they'll peck and they'll peck and they'll peck. And I want you and I want us as we confront false teaching and heresies within the church, I want us to be emu farmers and not emus. There are too many emus in the world who peck and peck and peck. And our attitude is not to be one of pride. It's not to be one of of self-confidence. We're not to go around pointing out everyone's fault like an emu, pecking and pecking and pecking. But instead, we're to be like the farmer who takes people aside in love and says, let me help you. Let me have a heart of love to restore you. And the reason we're able to do that is because of the gospel. Because what determines truth and error, what helps us identify false teaching from true teaching, is that our hearts are captured by the love of Christ revealed in the gospel. And the way we evaluate false teaching is through the lens of the gospel. And that's what I want us to see this morning. That the gospel includes bad news and good news and our response. And you say, you've said that before. I know. We desperately need to hear it again and again and again because we have forgetful hearts and we have busy hearts and we have hearts that are constantly being drawn away from Christ. And because we're so prone to let things other than the gospel, which is to have first place, come in and crowd out the greatness and the glory of Jesus. So we want to remember from 2 Peter 2 that the gospel has bad news. Now look at verse 4. If God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the, un- of the ungodly, And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. The bad news of the gospel is this, that there is a reality called sin. And that sin brings judgment and judgment would consign all of us the perfect, righteous judgment of a holy, holy, holy God would consign all of us to eternal punishment. Now that is not a popular truth. 
And it's not even a truth that I enjoy. Charles Spurgeon said, listen, when you talk about heaven, your face should show it. And when you talk about hell, your everyday face will do. Some people are way too excited about hell. Hell is not a doctrine to be excited about, but it's also not a doctrine to avoid because the gospel has bad news. And the bad news is that sin has brought destruction on this earth and there is a judgment to come. It's pictured in the stories of the angels. It's pictured in the story of Noah. It's pictured in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Real events that really happened. A few days ago, I was driving to Gainesville for an early morning meeting. I was on Highway 20, two lanes, and as I was driving down the highway, suddenly I saw two headlights, then four headlights. You knew what happened. Someone was crossing the center line, and now there were two automobiles coming toward me. We know what happens. If someone crosses the center line into your lane and they meet you, it brings destruction both on them and you. And sin is the same way. It's crossing a known boundary. And when, just as we know what happens when a car crosses the center lane, we need to understand what happens when people cross the center lane of God's holiness. When they transgress a known boundary, sin brings destruction. It brings alienation from God. And if sin is not dealt with, it brings judgment and that judgment, if not avoided, ultimately separates us from God and everything good in that place of separation the Bible calls hell. Now, do, listen, it's 2021. Do we really need all these ideas, sin, judgment, hell, condemnation? Yes. And here's why. Because the good news I'm about to tell you loses its goodness and its glory if we don't have the bad news understood, not so much with our minds, but with our hearts. Many years ago, Tim Keller wrote an article for Christianity Today about this very thing, and this is what he said. If an area is rid of its predatory or undesirable animals, the balance of that environment may be so upset that the desirable plants and animals are lost through overbreeding and with a limited food supply. That nasty predator that was eliminated actually kept in balance the number of other animals and plants necessary to that particular ecosystem. In the same way, if we play down bad or harsh doctrines within the historic Christian faith, we will find, to our shock, that we have gutted all our pleasant and comfortable beliefs too. 
the loss of the doctrine of hell and judgment and the holiness of God does irreparable damage to our deepest comforts. Our understanding of God's grace and love and of our human dignity and value to him. To preach the good news, we must preach the bad. And so Peter, in chapter 2, verses 4 through 6, has told us of some bad news. And all of us, apart from something rescuing us, would be left in the same destruct, destroyed condition that Lot and Noah and the angels would have found themselves in apart from God's rescue. The good news of the gospel is in verse 7. If he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. If he rescued Lot, the gospel, the good news of the gospel is that God saves sinners. That Jesus Christ came to rescue us from our lost condition. That there a way of escape, just as God provided a way of escape in the days of Noah through an ark. God has provided a way of escape for us through Jesus Christ. Just as God provided a way of escape for Lot from the evil and wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah and from, the own, from his own evil and wickedness. Because read Genesis 19. God did not save Lot because he was a perfect person. He saved righteous Lot because he looked in faith to God as his deliverer. Not because he was perfect, but because God was merciful to him. Read Genesis 19. Lot was a train wreck. It's a crazy story. But God rescued sinners and he can rescue you that's the good news of the gospel religion says rescue yourself oh where's the hope in that the reason why christmas brings the thrill of hope a weary world rejoices the reason why christmas tells us that there's hope is because yonder breaks a new and glorious morn where God will save sinners from their sin and the destruction that that sin brings. How? Through the cross. On the cross, Jesus Christ shows that God is just and he must punish sin. And he has. He's punished sin once and for all through his son on the cross. And Jesus Christ was drowned beneath the wrath of God. Jesus Christ bore the full penalty that our sins deserve on the cross. He was made like the city of Sodom. He was made sin. And he was destroyed in our place. 
and the cross shows that God is love. Oh, what moved the Father to punish the Son in our place was the love that He had for us. What moved Jesus to go to the cross was His love for His people. And He did it all for you and for me so that we would not have to bear the penalty. We would not have to face the wrath and we could escape the gospel has bad news. The gospel has good news. And our response, our response is to believe the gospel. Now I'm going to read a long portion of 2 Peter. And then we're going to come back and we're going to look at our response. Now 2 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 8. For by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. Daring, self-willed, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties, whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like unreasoning animals... Born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed. Suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong, they count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deception as they carouse with you having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way they've gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but he received a rebuke for his own transgression, for a mute donkey speaking with the voice of a man restrained the madness of the prophet. These are springs without water and mist driven by a storm for whom the black darkness has been reserved. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. Now, let me ask you this. In those verses, does it seem like everything's going great? No. Like it seems like there is an incredible conflict happening within this church. It seems as if something has turned this church into a complete dumpster fire. 
What happened? People have lost sight of the mastery of Jesus over all things. They are, they are believing themselves to be followers of Jesus, but by the evidence of their life, there is no clear demonstration of them having ever made the right response to Jesus. So what would the right response be? The right response, instead of promising freedom, 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 to do what you want to do, to give in to your sensuality, to give in to your desires, the greater freedom would have been to admit that you're powerless over sin, to admit that you are guilty before a holy God, and to run to Jesus for salvation as he's offered in the gospel. The gospel invites us to respond. And when we see our sin, and when we see the greatness of what Jesus has done, we turn from our sin, we admit we've sinned against God, we're in big trouble, and we run to Jesus to put our faith in him alone. That's what it means to believe the gospel. To believe the gospel means that we put all the trust of our life into Jesus. We say no to trusting in ourselves, in our own righteousness, and we say yes to trusting in Christ alone for salvation as he's offered in the gospel. But there's a third. There's a third word that we use to describe this conversion, and it's commit. That not only do we admit and believe, but we also commit ourselves to Christ. We say, Jesus, you come in as Savior and Lord. You now be master of my life. I want to go your way as a follower of yours. I don't want to be free to do what I want to do. I want to be free to do what I ought to do as I follow you. You see the difference? There is a vast difference between believing the gospel with our heads or even being stirred emotionally by the gospel and having Christ come into the very center of our lives to begin to own and control and direct and guide and master every area of our life. How is it with you? Have you believed in Christ with your head? Been stirred by Christ with your heart alone? Or have you taken the Lord Jesus Christ into the very center of your life and said yes to his mastery over all things. Does that mean we're perfect? <laughs> no. But it means that we're looking to the perfect one to continue the work of perfecting us until the day well, when we'll see him for who he really is. You want some hope? 
The hope of the gospel is that one day Jesus Christ will come again to establish the final state of things. Children will walk in the new earth without fear of assault. Children and families and people will worship Jesus for all eternity without fear of a diagnosis of cancer coming into their lane and turning their lives upside down. We will walk maskless for all eternity on a perfect earth. That is what's guaranteed by the work of Jesus begun in the incarnation at Advent, finished through his perfect life, his sacrificial death on the cross, his descent into the grave, his resurrection from the dead, and his ascension to the right hand of the Father, from where he is going to come again. And he will judge with perfect judgment And the only thing that will make a difference in that day is what you've done with Jesus now. So what have you done with Jesus? Have you in repentant faith turned from sin and trusted in Christ? If you haven't, won't you? And if you have, do you see what the gospel gives you? The gospel gives you a message of hope and salvation. If you've trusted Christ, you're saved. God saves sinners. The gospel gives you a way to evaluate false teaching. To say, does this teaching affirm the bad news? Or does it wiggle out of the bad news? Make the bad news not quite so bad. Does this teaching affirm the good news that God saves sinners? Or does it put people back on themselves to try and save themselves? Is it religion masking as Christianity? Does this teaching invite a full commitment to Christ for his glory as master over all things? How does it get into us? It gets into us as we preach the gospel. It gets into us as we preach the gospel to ourselves and to others. How many of you in the last few months have have gotten a sinus infection or have needed to be on antibiotics? Anyone? Listen, you go on antibiotics, they give you the antibiotics, they say, take these antibiotics for 10 days. What happens if you stop after two or three? You say, man, I'm feeling a lot better. This is great. I don't think I need to mess with the rest of these antibiotics. Why do they tell you to keep taking them for 10 days? The symptoms have gone away. But you take the full course of the antibiotics because you want all the benefits of those antibiotics to completely drive out the disease. And the gospel is something that we preach to ourselves every day because we want Christ to go on pushing out the evil and wickedness within ourselves. 
and we have to preach the gospel again and again. Now, this is one of the most humbling things that I've ever learned, and it's this. People remember 5% of what they hear. They remember 10% of what they read. They remember 50% of what they discuss, and they remember 90% of what they teach. I'm in the wrong business. Oh, dear people, do you see why we invite you to be involved in a biblical community where you're able to discuss and press the gospel into your life? And do you see the power of witnessing to the greatness of Jesus by sharing the gospel with others? You see, if we remember 90% of what we teach, if we want the gospel to be pressed into our lives, we need to have the gospel shared from our lives. You say, oh, I could never do it. Yeah, you can. Listen, let me help you take a step this week. Grab one of the Do You Know booklets. Go online. We have it on our website. Each of the pages is printed on the website. And this week, just take the initial step of reading the gospel to yourself. Pressing the gospel. The bad news, it's really bad news and it's true of me. But the good news is really good news and it's true of me. And my response is to admit and believe and commit and I want to take that into the center of my life. So you read the gospel, you teach the gospel to yourself and then Look for opportunities to have a gospel conversation. You say, well, I've never been trained. Well, just read the very same booklet you read to yourself, to someone else. Well, I don't know how to get into a gospel conversation. Well, on your seats are invitations to our Christmas Eve service. And I believe that one of the best ways this time of year to enter into a gospel conversation with others is to simply ask them the question, hey, do you have a church home where you plan to attend worship services on Christmas Eve? That's not very hard. So I'd encourage you to, to take one of the Christmas Eve invitations and to initiate a gospel conversation and then be ready to share by simply reading along with another person from the Do You Know booklet. But I wonder, I wonder, does your invitation have a face? So I'd love for you to grab one of the invitations in the seats around you, and I'd want, love for you to just take it in your hand. And I want you to think, as you look at that invitation, think about the face. Maybe it's the person in your neighborhood who lives alone, that you know has been widowed this year. Maybe it's, maybe it's the person that you see walking in your neighborhood by themselves. Maybe it's the person in your work, the, the person at the very bottom of, of your market that can't do anything for you. Maybe that's the person that God would have you love. Maybe it's somebody in your child's class or their team. 
Maybe it's that family. Maybe it's an aunt or an uncle, a brother or sister, a mother or a father. Maybe it's someone that you know to be far from God. Don't be afraid. Take this to that face in love. And let's pray right now for them, even as we pray for ourselves. Let's pray. Jesus, we look to you, asking that you would help us. Help us to be aware of false teaching, but to not be like an emu. Help us in love to speak to one another. Help us take the gospel into the very center of our lives and and then help us take the gospel to others. And I pray for every person here, for everyone worshiping online, that countless hundreds of people this week and in the weeks to come would be invited into gospel conversations with a simple question. Hey, do you or your family have a place to worship this Christmas Eve? And that we would respond to whatever the answer is with faith-filled love for them and for Jesus and be willing to take the gospel that's become so precious to us to others. Oh, Jesus, uh, we don't have the power to do it in ourselves. We need your Holy Spirit. So send your Holy Spirit. Stir in us a wide-eyed wonder for what you've done. And oh, Jesus, if there's any here who have never responded in repentant faith to the promise of the gospel, oh, Jesus, would you draw them to yourself even now? For I pray in your name, amen.